and welcome to Twelfth Night Podcast by Rose City Shakespeare Company. This is Rachel Onstad, your host, and I have an errata episode to record here, and that's errata as in we made a mistake, not like short for erotic or something, which would be uh, probably more interesting and more fun. But here's the deal. So throughout the series of this podcast where my co-hosts and I discuss the play and we break it down scene by scene, we discuss something called Original Practice Shakespeare. And this is, it turns out to be a pseudo-historical method of producing Shakespeare. Now, I want to be clear that I don't think there's really any terrible ways to produce Shakespeare unless you are deliberately hurting people with it. So, you know, on the scheme of crimes against humanity or Shakespeare, I think if you are producing Shakespeare in this way, I I think it's fine. I want to be clear that I, I think it's fine. However, we cannot say that it is historical. Several of the fallacies that were promoted through this method are things like saying that Shakespeare's company didn't rehearse, that actors in Shakespeare's time did not rehearse. This is not true. They obviously did rehearse. They also did not use rhetoric as a form of stage direction. And I, I don't think we get into that too much here during this series, but I have heard that expressed elsewhere, and so I thought I would bring that up. There is no historical basis for the idea that Shakespearean actors always faced front. That is not true. Again, some of this stuff, I'm not sure where it came from. However, we do know that by and large, the idea of this, that actors in Shakespeare's time did not rehearse, that they didn't know each other before they performed a play, that they didn't know who would be doing what roles, is not true. And all of that was promoted by somebody named Patrick Tucker, who wrote a book saying that he thought this is the way actors in Shakespeare's time might have produced Shakespeare or did produce Shakespeare because he thought that they would not have had time to memorize their lines and rehearse. This is just patently not true, and it was disproved in a book, interestingly enough, by his niece, Dr. Tiffany Stern, who, unlike Patrick Tucker, is an actual historian. Patrick Tucker was just somebody who did theater that kind of imagined the way he thinks things were or thought things were, and then promoted that. And it 
worked out for him. He sold a bunch of books. He sold a bunch of tickets to his shows. But it is flat out not true. Now, honestly, I'm a little embarrassed that I ever believed this. But this is just proof that anybody can be fooled by anything if you're surrounded by enough other people who believe it to be true. And in my case, I'm living in Portland, Oregon, and there's a thriving company here that does what they call Original Practice Shakespeare and promotes this whole idea that Shakespearean actors did not rehearse. They built their whole company around it. They get a lot of grant money based on it and everything else. And so as part of the local Shakespeare community, I just believed it. You know, I'm, <laughs> I don't want to tell people they're completely wrong about something they're doing unless I have the information to back it up. And at the time, I didn't know any better. And so I'm, I feel very embarrassed and I apologize greatly. And so I am recording this now in an attempt to repair some of that misnomer. I'm going to go back to the other episodes where we do the scene by scene commentary and put a little notice at the beginning saying, hey, this whole thing that we're discussing, it turns out is completely wrong. And hope that that absolves my crimes against history. The reason that I was able to break that false belief I had is because I was doing a lot of research into A Midsummer Night's Dream. And of course, during A Midsummer Night's Dream, the rude mechanicals do rehearse. Now, why that that doesn't just automatically put the kibosh on the whole idea that early modern actors didn't rehearse, I don't know. But as a result of working on this book about Midsummer Night's Dream, I started asking questions. You know, how, how do we know this? Are we just taking this as an article of faith? And it was an interesting response because it appears to be a very localized belief. So if you live in a place where there is a so-called original practice Shakespeare company, then you have probably been fed this line and may or may not have believed it. But when I went to discuss my doubts in an in a Facebook group full of academics who study early modern theater practice, they didn't know what I was talking about. There were one or two people who did know, but for the most part, people were going, wow, that sounds really interesting, but I've never heard anything like this. So that was kind of an interesting experience all on its own that I realized that this was not something that everybody just assumed. You know, when somebody who's running one of the most thriving Shakespeare companies 
in a reasonably sized city tells you, oh, yes, you know, Shakespeare's actors didn't rehearse. You're like, well, sure, okay, you know more than I do. <laughs> so anyway, um, this is, it's not true. It was never thought to be true by the majority of Shakespeare's scholars and practitioners. Now, I can tell you a little bit about how Shakespeare's actors did prepare for a play. And I found a lot of this through Tiffany Stern's wonderful book, From Shakespeare to Shake, <laughs> From Shakespeare to Sheridan, Rehearsal Practice in Early Modern England, I think it's called. Anyway, please forgive me. It's close to that title. Tiffany Stern, for sure, is the author. So what would happen is that the poet, the playwright, would write a play, and then they would shop this around to different theater companies. Now, in Shakespeare's case, he had his own theater company, so this process, I'm sure, was a little less labor-intensive. He most likely just said, hey, folks, I wrote another play. What do you think? And then he would tell them, or she, depending on the playwright, they would tell the company the basic plot of the story, and then the company would either say, yeah, that sounds great, go ahead, we'll pay you to write this, or they would say, eh, it's not for us, and they could pass on it. If the playwright got the green light, got the go-ahead, then they would go back and finish writing the play. Once that play was done, then they would read that play to the entire company. And then at that point, the parts would get assigned. Now, sometimes, often in fact, the playwright had the right to do the casting of the play. And often playwrights would have a specific actor in mind when they were writing a particular part, especially if they worked with the same company over and over again, as Shakespeare did. So, again, we think we know that Shakespeare wrote certain parts with certain actors in mind. It certainly appears that way, based on analyzing the text. So, let's say Shakespeare's gotten to this point. He's read the play to the Chamberlain's men and divided up the parts. Then, at that point, after that, then the actors would read through the whole script and do kind of a table read. And this is something that we still do now. There's almost always a table read at the very beginning of rehearsal. This gives the actors a chance to know the whole play. It gives the director a chance to see what they're going to need to work on and which scenes they need to schedule first, which actors might need what kind of notes in order to produce the best production possible. So after this table read, then the actors would take the parts home and memorize them. Now, one of the reasons that Patrick Tucker, as I mentioned before, said that 
he thought they didn't have time to rehearse is because of how long it would take them to memorize their parts. And this is just, first of all, it, it doesn't make any sense because rehearsal is an aid to memory. In other words, if, if you're only memorizing lines by yourself, it's not nearly as helpful as if you have somebody to at least run lines with. And if any of you are actors, or certainly if any of you live with an actor, you will know that the best way that you can help that actor is to run lines with them. So in any event, the actors went to memorize their lines. Now, we have to remember that during the early modern era, yes, lots of people were learning how to read. We don't know how many, but we know it was a lot because they were teaching every single male child in grammar school, regardless of social class, how to read. And many, many girls were being taught at home by their mothers or other relatives how to read. And there was a real big push towards literacy during the Elizabethan era because they wanted people to be able to read the Bible. They'd gone through a lot of political upheaval and infrastructure investment in order to get out Bibles that were written in English. And naturally, they wanted people to be able to read these Bibles that they'd worked so hard on to, to be in English. So lots and lots of people were learning how to read. Now, we know that only about 30% of men and 10% of women knew how to write. But that doesn't tell us how many knew how to read. And certainly, when we're looking at Midsummer Night's Dream, they all know how to read. It's possible that Snug doesn't know how to read, but we know that all the rude mechanicals, in spite of being at the lowest strata of Elizabethan society, just above beggars and criminals, were the rude mechanicals, and yet they all know how to read. They might not pronounce things correctly, but they definitely can read. And so we can guess that any of the actors in Shakespeare's time would have known how to read. However, writing was a completely different skill. And so if you wanted to share the thing that you had learned, or if you had learned it from someone who could not write, then you had to learn how to memorize that and keep it in your memory banks, whether it was the recipe for making bread or the directions to get to your cousin's house in the next town or a chapter out of the Bible that you wanted to recite or a poem. Anyway, you get the idea. You had to learn how to memorize things. And there is every evidence to suggest that people were much better at memorization back then because they had to be. Memorization is a skill and it's a skill you can learn and practice. Now, there are techniques to memorization, and there is something called memory palaces. 
And this is a technique that was described by ancient Greek and ancient Roman writers where you would learn to memorize something by picturing an object or by associating a particular space or visual with the piece of, I guess I want to say data, that you were trying to memorize. Now, we can understand this if, if we think about what happens when we're trying to remember something. So if you're in one room and you remember that you want to go to the other room, say, to find a particular book. And yes, this happens to me all the time. And so you go out of your room and then you get to the, the other room and, and you can't remember why you're there. What are you doing there? Why did you come in? You know you came in here for something. What the heck was it? And then you go back to the original room and you remember again. That's what's called the method of loci or L-O-C-I, however we want to pronounce that. I'm not quite sure to be honest, but basically we attach pieces of data to specific visual or tactile or, you know, smell experiences and it's easier for us to recall that bit of information or data when we revisit that other sensory experience. And so this method of memorization was known at least as far back as ancient Rome and is described in some of the texts from that period. Now, people today still use that method. And there are memorization contests where people will memorize a thousand random numbers within half an hour just by using this particular method. And so it seems likely that actors in Shakespeare's time who had been taught this method of memorization and who were memorizing scripts that were deliberately made easier to memorize because of rhyme, because of meter, that they would not have needed as much time to memorize their lines as we would today. In addition, they would have known what all the words meant. They wouldn't have needed any of that explained to them. They would have gotten all the associations with current and past events that were embedded in the script. And also, they would have messed up their lines sometimes. I don't care who you are. I don't care how great of an actor you are, or how good you are at memorization. I mean, there's probably a few who get it perfect every time, but most actors, most people will flub at least one line during a play. Now, maybe if you've been doing the same play week after week after week, I can see that at some point this would get ingrained inside your mind and you probably wouldn't forget anything after a while. But there is no reason to believe that Shakespeare's actors got every right 
Anyway. There is no reason to believe that Shakespeare's actors got every line correctly every single time. And we know that this is likely true because when we look at the versions of the script that were in the different folios and the different quartos, we see different lines. And some of those may be because Shakespeare changed the line before a different production. This happens today with playwrights as they're workshopping plays or even maybe revisiting a play that they haven't seen in a while. They'll tinker with it. They'll move stuff around. This is not unusual. But because we know that these plays were written down after Shakespeare died, we can guess that some of those actors either changed lines or they changed in the progress of the production or they didn't remember it right. In any event, lines and words, even in Shakespeare's plays, were not set in stone when he wrote them down. And there was no need nor expectation for the actors to remember every single line exactly the way it was written. I'm sure Shakespeare would have appreciated that, but we know that realistically that probably didn't happen. So where are we in our process? The actors have gone off to memorize their lines. Most people did not live alone. Most people did not sleep alone during Shakespeare's time. Most people would have shared a bed with somebody else, even if they did not have a sexual relationship with that person, even if they were of the same gender. Whether <laughs> how you define sex in Shakespeare's time is a whole other episode, but in any event, people did not have the luxury of private space to go and learn lines all by themselves all the time. We know that back then when people read, they would read out loud. They did not read silently to themselves. And so practically as of necessity, other people would have heard actors practicing their lines. Their actors would probably have been, you know, hanging out with other actors, running scenes. Again, you know, we, we think of, we think of London as being much bigger than it was. But the reality is that if you were an actor in Shakespeare's time, you hung out with other actors and you ran into them everywhere at the market, at the tavern, at the whorehouse, at the clothiers, the tailors, wherever you went, you were likely to run into other actors. And so it would have been really peculiar if actors did not take that opportunity to run lines with each other, just as they had done for hundreds of years before and have done for hundreds of years since. So the actors memorize the lines. 
And then they come back and have at least one rehearsal. At that rehearsal would have been somebody called the book holder, and the book holder acted the way kind of a, a cross between a modern day stage manager and a director. There weren't any directors in Shakespeare's time, but there were other people who filled that role. People who made sure the actors understood what they were saying, that they were saying it correctly, and that they were standing in the right place on stage, that they knew who they were saying the line to, that they were using the right gestures to go with the line, because at the time, people used specific gestures to indicate a particular feeling and to express a particular word or argument. There were established gestures that went along with that. And you can understand why in an era when most productions were done outside and there were no electric amplifications systems and all the people in the audience are all talking and drinking and flirting and arguing and you know who knows what that having hand gestures that expressed what you were saying would help get your meaning across even if somebody missed a few words or something they'd be like oh well they they rose their hands to the sky they're expressing some kind of passion here. So we've got the book holder, we've got the company manager, and the company manager sometimes would also help with these, what we would think of as director's duties today. And if the playwright was in the cast, then they, you can guess, would have had an opinion about all of this too. So we've got a new play. A lot of times what would happen is that companies would prepare new plays just before Christmas when a lot of them were expected to be produced or they would prepare them during other downtimes in the schedule. They would rehearse this new play at least once, maybe more. Often it was more. We can guess that they spent apparently around three weeks, but we really don't know. From what the historians can tell, there is no set time period. And that makes a lot of sense because some plays require more rehearsal time than other plays. Some plays you just only had a week to get it ready and so you're just showing up every morning and rehearsing and they did rehearse in the mornings actors who did not show up for rehearsal might be fined so they would rehearse the play and then they would perform the play for the first time and usually a play was performed for the first time in front of the public and then the public would let the playwright know what they thought of the play. And this sounds 
terrifying to me for the playwright. But in any event, what would happen is the audience members would tell the playwright what they thought. And if the audience didn't like it, if the audience really hated the play, then that was usually the end of that play. And it never, ever got shown again. If the audience did like it and they just had a few suggestions, then often the playwright would incorporate those suggestions into the play or, you know, blow them off, who knows. And then that play would basically be considered ready for actual audiences. After the play had been performed in front of audiences a, a lot of times, then it might be considered worthy of submitting to the master of revels for the court to decide whether or not it was fit entertainment for the royal court. And if it was, then it would get shown before the queen. So that was the process of early modern play production for a new play. However, if it was a play that had been performed before, then the actors were expected to already have the lines memorized. And I'm sure that they would take some time to brush up on the memorization and then go ahead and perform the play to the best of their abilities. Now, if an actor was no longer able to perform a particular role, then often they would have to train another actor to perform that role for them. And in this case, they would be a mentor to the new actor who was going to be in that role. Because people had seen the play before and they expected it to be performed in a certain way. It's kind of like if you go to a concert and there's a, a band and you have heard their song played the same way on every album and in every live concert, and all of a sudden they play it in a completely different way, or they get a new musician in there who just completely ignores the way it used to be played. People notice, and they may or may not get upset about that. And so people would notice when there was a new actor in a role who perhaps didn't play it in exactly the same way as the actor beforehand. And so to prevent people from getting upset, then the actors would take the time to learn how to perform the role the way it had originally been played. We need to understand that in Shakespeare's time, originality didn't have the same status that it does in our culture today. Today, we want artists to be completely original and do things in a way that hasn't been done before. But that was not true in the past. What they wanted was to see the same thing done better than it had been before, and yet also the same as it had been done before. So whole different philosophy there. So the company would perform this play and hopefully everybody's happy and they go on their way. Now, theater companies in Shakespeare's time often had to have over a dozen, sometimes 30 plays in their repertory 
that they could perform within a couple days notice because people would request specific plays in much the same way that they might request of a symphony a specific piece to be played at their event. So a symphony needs to keep some pieces in repertory that the musicians all basically know and just need to rehearse a couple times in the same way early modern theater companies were expected to have several plays in repertory, which meant that any actor at any given time had to have over a dozen, maybe 30 different parts memorized. And so you can imagine that the simplest thing would be to give actors similar parts over and over again, so that even if they got things a little messed up, if somebody's playing the grumpy father as somebody plays in Aegeus, then they might be playing the grumpy father in a bunch of other plays as well. They were also expected to look a certain way, to sound a certain way, to play that kind of character. In addition, costumes were all owned by the actors, and a lot of times an actor would get cast based on his having the right wardrobe for the part. So we can see how this kind of environment could lead to a company being able to put on lots and lots of different plays at, you know, a, a couple days notice. And I'm sure that those actors had to work really hard to memorize all those lines. I'm sure that it was not something that everybody could do. I think some actors were probably better at it than other actors. And that those actors, when combined with a certain amount of charisma and the ability to show up on time probably made them better and more successful actors overall. So that's uh, a brief wrap up on early modern theater practice. And again, I, I want to apologize on behalf of myself and my co-hosts for leading you down the garden path in terms of what types of early modern theater practices there were and the idea that Shakespeare's actors did not rehearse. It's not true. Sorry. I have an announcement. Very excited to tell you about the book that I wrote called A Midsummer Night's Dream Illustrated Handbook and Encyclopedia which will be available at the beginning of January 2022, maybe the second week or so. So if you are listening to this podcast before then, it might not quite be out there. A Midsummer Night's Dream Illustrated Handbook and Encyclopedia is a carefully researched dramaturgical guide to William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, suitable for actors, directors, designers, and scholars, and fans, of course. If you're none of the above and you just love Midsummer Night's Dream, then this book is for you too. It 
includes an illustrated glossary with over 700 definitions specific to A Midsummer Night's Dream, including body puns and sexual metaphors. There is a full script, a scene breakdown and discussion of the settings in the play, props list, character write-ups, including the historical context for each character, the locations mentioned in the play, a lot of locations mentioned in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Sparta, Babylon, all of that stuff. France even, I've got a little write-up in there for every location and what Shakespeare's audiences might have known about it and what it was like at the time that Shakespeare was writing. I've also included the sources for A Midsummer Night's Dream, all the different myths and texts that Shakespeare likely drew the characters and plot from. I describe a lot of the myths and the mythical characters that are mentioned in the play, quite a few of those in A Midsummer Night's Dream. There's a description of 16th century theater practice, A Midsummer Night's Dream herbal compendium, and contextual articles for Shakespeare's time about beliefs concerning gender, sexuality, religion, ethnicity, marriage, medicine, magic, and astrology, and as always, much, much more. Please check it out. I've priced it for affordability. Do keep in mind that this book does discuss body puns, sexual content. So think about that. If, you, if you're planning to buy the book for somebody else, you might want to take a look-see if that person is under 18 to decide if you think it's appropriate for them. But there's a lot of images in there. I put my heart and soul into this book, and I hope that you enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. So I am currently speaking to you. It's the day before New Year's Eve in 2021. We're all still in dealing with our own 21st century plague. And I hope that you are staying safe and warm. And I hope you get to enjoy some Shakespeare. Bye.